1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Timothy.
2: So glorification, by definition, basically is the final phase of the believer's salvation experience, and occurs when he or she leaves this world, either by death or by rapture, and enters into the presence of God in heaven. This is when we're glorified with him. And the Bible talks about being glorified, it talks about getting glorified bodies. But for example, in Colossians 3, 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And in Romans 8, 17, it says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ.
1: As a believer in Jesus Christ, you will share with Him in glory. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, He speaks to you about the inheritance you will receive because of your faith in Jesus. When you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you became a child of God. Pastor Gary explains that this means that you will share in the inheritance of Jesus. One of these wonderful gifts is to be glorified in Christ, to be able to one day enter into the kingdom of God and enter into glorification. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is again a continuation of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to give instruction to these pastors, Timothy and Titus, concerning how the church should function, what it should look like, uh, some of the warnings about what you should avoid as a church. And so these are very practical letters. As we are reading through these together on Wednesday nights, it helps us to understand just a little bit more about what what our church should, should look like as we try to model it, of course, always after Scripture. Uh, written by Paul about five to six years after 1 Timothy, and he writes this from prison, remember? He's in Rome, Paul is, 67 AD is is around the time that he writes this, and it's the last letter that he writes before he is executed by Emperor Nero around the year 67-68 AD. He will be executed for his faith, uh, but Paul is Faithful to the end, and he talks here in this letter we 'll see it later, how he talks about i i 've run the race i 've finished the course, and um, there is in store for me now the crown of the crown of righteousness, and not for me only, but for all who long for his appearing, so he he 's definitely someone that we can look to as a good example of someone who followed Christ in good times, and in bad times. And uh, we left off last week only getting through the first seven verses of chapter 2. So in the first seven verses, Paul exhorts us to live the Christian life like three particular vocations or occupations, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. He tells us there in the first few verses, uh, live your faith like a soldier, in that, you know, a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs, and it's it's kind of this idea like, you know, don't get entangled with the world. You know, you're, you're serving the Lord and his army. Be a good soldier. And the Lord's army, don't get messed up and entangled in the way that this world operates. And he also says that a soldier wants to always please his COs or his CO. So your commanding officer in this illustration is, of course, the Lord. And so we should want to live our lives in such a way that it pleases the Lord as our commanding officer. And then he talks about the life of uh, of an athlete, and he says, you know, an athlete goes into strict training, and he says the athlete competes according to the rules in order to get the crown. That's kind of a comparison to either the Isthmus Games or the Olympic Games. And we talked about how, as a as an athlete, if you will, uh, understanding that we're running a race as Christians. We should compete according to the rules. 1 John 5, 3 says this is love for God, that we would obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Because when when we're obeying God's commands and we know that his rules or his commands are for our best, for our benefit, then, then we can obey his commands. They're not burdensome because we know, okay, sometimes they're not convenient, sometimes they're not easy, but they're not burdensome. Because when we understand that that obeying God's commands means, for our benefit, uh, good things, uh, then, then it's not a burden. And then he compares also the Christian life to that of a farmer, and he uses the word hardworking to describe a farmer. Uh, every good farmer that I've ever known is a hardworking person, and so as Christians, we should, you know, persevere. Uh, you're not working hard to earn your salvation, but you're working hard to persevere and to continue to uh, run the race with perseverance. But then he also speaks about how the farmer shares in the first to share in the crops. There are seasons in a farmer's life. There will be seasons in your life as a Christian. Sometimes there's the plowing season where God is just turning stuff up that you didn't realize was there. Uh, Sometimes it's the planting season. Uh, sometimes it's the rainy season. Ever felt like your life as a Christian pretty, is pretty blah and things seem cloudy? Yeah, there are seasons that we go through. But then there's the fruitful season, and that's why he speaks there about the farmer being the first to receive the share of the crops because Paul reminds us in Galatians 6-9, let us not give up doing good because if we persevere, we will at the right time reap a harvest if we do not Give up. So there is a harvest of righteousness in store for us who do not give up. So he makes that comparison in the first seven verses to those three uh, occupations or vocations, and we left off at verse eight. Second Timothy chapter two, pick up at verse eight with me, where Paul writes, he says, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. Uh, he he mentions here raised from the dead because he's pointing out that he's fully God. You know, only God is able to raise the dead. So he's raised from the dead. He's fully God and he's descended from David. He's fully man. And that's the interesting, unique uh, virtue of our Savior. He was fully God. He was fully man. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. He experienced our lives and died for us on a cross, taking on humanity. But he, he's fully God, raised from the dead, descended from David. Uh, we know this, Isaiah the prophet, we're in the book of Isaiah on Sunday mornings, and in chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah talks about of the increase of his government, there shall be no end, and of its peace there shall be no end. And he, meaning Messiah, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Isaiah even speaks about Messiah has to be one who descends from David because that's part of the Davidic line the Messiah will come from. When you look at the genealogical records, by the way, in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, you don't need to turn, but in Matthew chapter 1, it basically gives the genealogical record of Jesus through the line of his adopted dad, Joseph. And Luke chapter 3 gives the genealogical line of Jesus through his mother, Mary. And the interesting thing is both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. Joseph's line can be traced through David's son Solomon. Mary's line can be traced through David's son Nathan. But both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David, which gives then Jesus, though he's not biologically of Joseph, he's legally entitled as the adoptive son of Joseph, To David's line. And as the son of Mary, he's he lays claim to David's line through her as well. So Jesus is a fulfillment. He's a descendant of David. He is uh, the Son of God who is raised from the dead, descended from David. And and Paul goes on to write here in in verse 8: This is my gospel. You know, it's all about Jesus. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. Again, that's a word that he uses four times through this letter: suffering. Uh, is something that escapes us in modern Christianity, uh, but not for many others around the world who are suffering for the gospel. And he, in particular, is suffering even to the point, he says here, of being chained like a criminal, because he is. He's in the, the, the maritime prison in Rome, and he's chained there like a criminal. He hadn't done anything wrong. He's just preaching the gospel. He says, and I love this part, but God's word is not chained. God's Word has not changed. He, he realizes, I might be in chains, but the Word of God is going to go forth. And boy, has it ever. I mean, the Bible is, you know, just in terms of marketing, although it's, you know, I don't want to reduce it to that, but it's the number one best-selling book in human history. All right, over six and a half billion Bibles circulating our world today. And even though a guy like Paul and many others will be enchained or imprisoned or, or martyred for their faith, The word of God will continue to advance and the word of God you cannot change. He says in verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now there's a mouthful there because He speaks of enduring everything, so he says, you know, I I mean, nobody likes the conditions that he finds himself in, but he says, I'm enduring everything because there's a purpose here. I'm enduring everything for the sake of the elect. Now, circle the word elect in your Bibles, because it's interesting that though he refers to the elect he speaks of them in the same verse as saying, I hope they too may also obtain salvation. Well, wait a minute, Paul, if they're elect, aren't they already saved? What do you mean that you hope that they would obtain salvation? If you're speaking of the saints, if you're speaking of the elect, why don't you speak of them as those who are already saved? Why do you speak of them as those who you hope too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory? So, a little quick, uh, this, is, this is related to this passage, but a little diversion for the moment, especially for those of you who like to take notes. You're going to notice in your Bibles, in your New Testament, that there are three tenses of salvation. That in the Bible it speaks about that you have been saved, it also talks about how you are being saved, and it speaks about how you shall be saved. Now, I gave you the references there uh, on the screen, and I'm just going to read those references to you. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, Paul speaks of having been saved in past tense as an act of faith that you become saved and then you are saved having been saved. And he writes in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, very familiar verses to us, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, this is a gift from God, not of works that any man should boast. And so He speaks of salvation in that passage in Ephesians 2, as something that happens when you exercise your faith, and thus now you have been saved. But it's interesting also that he he speaks of it in the present tense when he writes when Paul writes to the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where he says this for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. I'm going to to explain this all, but just I'm going to read the verses first, and then we'll tie it all together. How is it possible you have been saved, but now he says you are being saved? I mean, which is it? Well, to complicate matters further, he uses it in future tense in Romans 5, 9, where Paul says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So the Bible presents different tenses of our salvation, because in general, what the Bible is communicating is that though salvation occurs at a moment in time when one opens his or her heart to Jesus and asks Christ to come into his or her heart, the fact of the matter is that salvation becomes a journey whereby you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're growing in salvation. You are maturing in your salvation, and you will ultimately experience the fulfillment of your salvation. So because it's written in various tenses, it's also good to become acquainted with three particular words that the Bible uh, uses to describe this journey of your salvation. And those three words are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, I don't want to get too stuck in the weeds over this, but I think it's good for us to be equipped with some of these terms. So, here's basically a definition for justification Justification is the instantaneous act of God whereby he forgives the sinner of all sins and declares him or her perfectly righteous in his sight. Justification before a holy God is possible solely on the grounds that Christ has borne every sin committed by the sinner. Now, there's many verses in the Bible that speak about justification, and you can Google it or get out of Good Concordance, and you can see that many times in the Bible, the New Testament talks about justification or justified. I'm just giving you one example, which is Romans 5 verse 1, which says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, I-, I was taught in Bible school, a simple way to remember justified, the word justified, is if you break it down, what it it really means is that when you come to faith and you put your faith in Christ and he forgives you of your sins, and it's this instantaneous work whereby when we exercise our faith in response to what Christ has done for us on the cross, we're now justified by God. All right. So a simple way that that I've always remembered that from Bible school is just as if I'd never sinned. That's the way that God sees you now, because when you come to him through faith in what Christ has done for you, you're justified. And when he looks at when God looks at you, it's just as if I'd never sinned, because now I take on the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. I didn't earn, didn't deserve. It's not of myself. It's given to me. It's the righteousness of God given to me. So just as if I'd never sinned. So, so my son, Austin, a few years ago was, was at Liberty and uh, getting his Bible degree. And so he, he called me one day and was talking about justification. And I said, hey, hey, use this simple definition in your paper that I always learned in Bible school, just as if I'd never sinned. So he did. His professor shredded him over that. <laughs> so that's, that's not a very good way to understand the word justification. So anyway, I leave it with you. Irrespective of what one little professor said at Liberty University, because <laughs> it's always helped me to understand it. And so, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he's not saved. I don't know. Maybe anyway. I just like so he doesn't really know what justified is. Anyhow, that's my take on it. But we'll move on. I'm sure he's saved. It's a great school. I'm just kidding. So justification. So that's the idea of having been. So that's the past tense part of our salvation. I have been justified. You exercise faith. That's not a progressive thing. That happens when you when you exercise faith in response to what Christ has done for you on the cross. You're justified by God. It's not. It's not like God is sitting up in heaven going, to give, "Give me a few years on this, and then I'll I'll think about it with you." You know, because I'm not sure you you really. I'm not, all the stuff you've done, I'll justify you one day, but right now you're just not worthy of justifying. It's, it's an instantaneous thing that God does for us because of our faith in what Christ has done for us. Then the other term to understand, though, is sanctification, because this is where it becomes this progressive tense. And, but I need to point out that it is both a position, 1 Corinthians six eleven, and a process, Hebrews 10 14 whereby the believer moves from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity over time as he or she learns God's Word and makes good choices to live God's will. So uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, You were washed, you were sanctified, there's that word sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sanctification is basically a word... uh, hagios, which means holy. And you and I are made holy in the sense that the literal definition for, for hagios means that, that we're set apart and and that when, when we are justified by faith, God then, as far as he's concerned, positionally sets us apart as belonging unto him. So in that sense, we are positionally made righteous and holy in his sight. Again, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's all what God does for us. He sanctifies us. So we are positionally made holy before him. But it's interesting to note, though, that Hebrews 10, 14 says this, because by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And it's, and it's intentionally written to us in the original Greek language in the, in the present passive tense of hagios again, and it shows an ongoing progress. In other words, holiness is not just a position whereby God separates you as belonging unto him and sees you as holy. It is now a progress whereby you live out holiness unto the Lord. Now, I I know some people disagree. I've been in some church services where, where people put dates on sanctification, People will say, you know, I was, I was saved in 1973, and I was sanctified in 1975. And I'm like, wow! Like, you, like you haven't yeah, I mean, sinned since 1975? Like, you're perfect now, and you're holy. But there are some people who actually believe that, and believe that that's the way Scripture presents sanctification. But I would just respectfully disagree that it speaks of it as both a position and a process, and again, reading Hebrews 10, 14, it makes it clear that, that we are being made holy. Now, how is it that we're being made holy? It's because our salvation is something we work out, and as we mature in our faith, we become aware of some things, convicted about some things, and obedient about some things. You know, when you first get saved, there's some stuff that God has to clean up. You know, the good, the good thing is, God never expects you to clean up your act and then come to Him. If that, if that were the case, none of us would ever be clean enough to be accepted. But what God does want from us, though, is in response to his love for us and the salvation that has been granted to us through Christ is that when we come to him in all of our mess and brokenness and sinfulness and our past and how, and how messy everything is, that when we come to him with all that and, he, and, and then we get saved, Now, little by little, it's like removing layers of an onion. He's going to begin to show you, now I want you you to, you to start to clean up your mouth. I want you to start to clean up your mouth, okay? Now I want you to start to clean up your eyes. I want mean, you to just start to clean up your friends. I want mean, you to start, you know, where you, where you hang out with, the places you go, and things you, I want you to stop sleeping with your boyfriend. I want you to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. You know, and all these things begin to be exposed in our hearts. And that requires then obedience in response to, to his love for us, that we would grow in sanctification. We would grow in holiness because it's this maturing process where we're leaving the infancy of our salvation and we're moving on to maturity in our salvation. Does everybody understand this? So th- th- God calls us, and he's going to talk here further down in this chapter if we ever get to it tonight. He's going he's to talk further, and he's, and he's going to even say, well, just, just take a quick glance at verse 14. And he says, keep reminding them of these things. And he says, warn them. Warn them. And, and he's going to go on in the rest of the chapter, talk about warning about things that they're saying, and then things that they're doing. And he's going to talk even further down uh, in verse uh, 22. Two, flee the evil desires of youth. King, King James says, flee youthful lusts. ESV talks about uh, passions in verse 22. So, so he's, he's going to talk about, listen, there's a responsibility that every Christian has of not just responding to God's love and the message of the cross and exercising faith, but now having done that to walk in holiness out of reverence for God. And as God begins to expose things in your heart and in your life, you begin to give those over to the Lord, and you begin to walk more and more in holiness, and that sanctification is progressive in that sense. But then there's there's another term that the Bible speaks of, and that's, that's this future tense of our salvation. That's glorification. Glorification. So glorification, by definition, basically is the final phase of the believer's salvation experience and occurs when he or she leaves this world either by death or by rapture and enters into the presence of God in heaven. And this is when we're glorified with him. And the Bible talks about being glorified. It talks about uh, getting glorified bodies. But for example, in Colossians 3, 4, it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And in Romans 8, 17, it says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, if we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So there's the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation. Cornerstone's your
1: connection run towards your new life We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. You've been listening to a teaching from a series in the book of 2 Timothy. In this letter from Paul to Timothy, the older missionary mentions how he has accomplished what he set out to do as a prisoner for Christ. There's contentment, even in uncertain and dire circumstances, that what he'd done to further Christ's message was enough. Paul wanted Timothy to hear these words to comfort and give Timothy a boldness to be able to proclaim the same message. Could you speak a similar message to those you're around, that what you've done for Christ would be pleasing to God? What would people say about your testimony at the end of your life? 2 Timothy is a great example of how Paul finished his life well, according to God's standards. We encourage you to keep reading in 2 Timothy for more great insights from Paul to Timothy. If you missed any part of today's message or would like to explore other books of the Bible with Pastor Gary, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc today. You can listen online or you can download our mobile app to take these teachings on the go. Join us again next time for more in Second Timothy, here on Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, you're not alone.